Today on the Dolby Institute podcast, we're speaking with Academy Award winner Emerald Fennell and her team behind Saltburn, which is without question one of the wildest films you will see this year. If you haven't seen it already, I strongly suggest you do so before listening to this episode. There's really no way to talk about this movie without getting into a lot of spoilers, so consider yourself warned. Saltburn could be described as a darkly comic, grotesquely beautiful, dramatic thriller that is literally dripping with sexual tension and creeping dread. If that sounds insane, it's because it is. I saw the premiere of Saltburn at this year's Telluride Film Festival, and the audience had such an amazing reaction to the movie. As I was watching it, I was thinking, oh my goodness, I want to have this team on this podcast to talk about this wicked, wicked movie and its incredible track. So I'm really happy to be in conversation today with not only Emerald, but supervising sound editors Nina Hartstone and Alam Hoffman, production sound mixer Nina Rice, and re-recording mixers Adam Shrivner and Jasper Thorne. Just a quick note, right after we started our conversation, Emerald's computer had some issues, so she literally jumped down the hall into Nina Hartstone's hotel room for the rest of the conversation. I wanted to start our talk by asking writer-director Emerald Fennell about her inspiration in making the film. I wanted to make a gothic country house thriller, you know, kind of old-fashioned, brides had revisited go between atonement sort of something happened in a country house one summer movie um because i love playing with genres and that kind of gothic british subgenre felt very thrilling and because of the structure of that genre you know you always need to be looking back um in time it's the protagonist who's looking back in time so i just thought well nobody's nobody looks good in 2006 <laughs> That'll knock some of the beauty off, off proceedings. So yeah. Well, it also saved you from having to deal with cell phones, right? Uh, and you know, in in quite the same way, and smartphones. That... I suppose so. In in quite the same way, yes. Although they did exist, of course, for those of us who had Blackberries, and Facebook was, you know, was already it already existed. But I think, you know, I suppose yes. You, you're not worrying too much about those things, although choosing the BlackBerry, all of us reminding ourselves of the BlackBerry ringtone was quite harrowing. <laughs> One of the things that you notice right away in watching the film is your choice of the aspect ratio of four by three. And so I was uh, curious. I, I know that um, uh, I read an interview in which you talked about that 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 sort of. Uh, made a sense of like almost like peeping in. So I was curious about your decision for four by three and for the sound team, that restricted visual aspect ratio, how did that translate for you into the sound design of the film? Well, I'll just quickly yeah, talk a little bit about that decision. I mean, I think like every decision that you make on a movie, it's it's a combination of factors. Some of them are practical. Um, Archie and Jacob are both six foot five, which makes practically shooting with other actors quite complicated so that's sort of already you're kind of not going to be looking kind of anamorphic lenses necessarily but I think um I guess we felt that our references were quite formal so we were looking at Caravaggio paintings Joshua Reynolds you know looking at the house it's quite tall and square we also wanted a lot of very 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 close close-ups and obviously the squarer the format the more face you get and less background and it's just a natural process of trying and trying and seeing what works but of obviously the more height you have the more headroom you have 
the more Nina's life becomes complicated. That's right. And um, my boom ups were having to like retrain their brain because like you think, oh, it's a 40. And then you go put the boom in. It's like, I know you're well in shot. <laughs> and then just having to ease off and then just having the boom up sort of just really ride the frame either underneath or around it, you know, to get the right sound and perspective of the shot. So were you able to use, uh, you know, the boom mic as much as you wanted to, or did you rely a little bit more on lavaliers or did it, how did I, that go? In my mix for our wides, I played a boom and tickled a little bit of radio mic in um, personals. And then as we got in, um, it was mostly all booms um, mixing on set. Yeah, just to give that, you know, that space and, you know, the atmosphere that we're in, like the big grand halls and stuff and outside and that sort of thing. Yeah. I definitely want to get into that, but I was curious just about for your response to the question about the aspect ratio and did that affect at all the way you approach the sound design for the film? Yeah, I mean, it, it probably affected the mix more than the design, I would I would suggest. It was um, quite interesting when we got going with it. I mean, on a very basic level, just panning things around, it's it sort of feels like the controls are more sensitive. So you're kind of like things are going off the screen and, you, you know, you don't have to move things as much you know because the picture's smaller right so it's it was it was kind of interesting getting to grips with that um but beyond that uh you know when we when there's like punch-ins and stuff to the, like emerald was talking about with the close-ups and stuff it affected that a bit as well it kind of adjusted how we you know what the focus was of the shot and focus was of the sound um so yeah it was it's a subtle difference but it but it is a difference nonetheless and i think it made the film it made it more it made it dialogue focused in places and it and it also the other thing it did was allowed us more width on the on the establishing shots and with our ambiences and stuff like that which play a big part in the mix um they feel wider because the again the picture's in the middle and you can expand the sound out bigger than it so that's something you can't normally do on a cinema you know 235 it doesn't doesn't do the same I thought about that quite a bit in terms of, you know, I'm sure, to, as you say, it affected your decisions about panning dialogue because you don't want to pan wider than the, you don't want to pan the sonic image wider than the visual image that's on that's on the screen. But you also make an interesting choice, which is that you mixed in Dolby Atmos, which is, of course, a very full fidelity, very wide, very immersive format with this very restrictive uh, uh, aspect ratio. So that, that must have been some some interesting juxtaposition for you to play with. Yeah, absolutely. It was. Um, I, I wasn't entirely sure when we started. Actually, when we first, when I first watched the film, I was. It was running through my head like, is this going to sound like a, you know, an older film? Is it going to be very mono? Is it, you know, how is that going to play out? But I think it worked out really well in the end. I was, you know, when we got into it and just started feeling our way with it, it just it all came together. With, you know, it's totally subconscious, really, in the, in terms of mixing. It just it just happened that way, and and um, and it's really effective, you know. Well, and it's also very visceral, like it's a visceral movie. So even if Dolby Atmos isn't kind of being used, like, even if it's not kind of immersive all the time, when you choose the decisions to make it immersive really hit very hard. And so, you know, there's there's a kind of moment when Oliver's getting lost in the maze when things unravel, which is like the most immersive use of like sound and design and a school. Um, and it just hits so different because it's, you know, we've really kind of like held back before then. And and just in terms of like, you know, all of Alam's work, like all of the, the kind of um, 
the sticky, intense, sort of visceral sexual stuff, you know, that that hits a lot harder the more immersive it feels. Yeah, so the team had lots of fun, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, such a, they they keep emailing me actually. They're so they we, they they said it was the best fun they've had creating sounds for a film ever, and they got to experiment loads with uh, all sorts of uh, different animals, vegetables, minerals, trying to get <laughs> trying to get just the right sounds. And the whole I think the whole sort of get being very close to. Uh, an actor and their performance, you go from the very intimate, you know, in, the, in some of those moments with the aspect ratio, you go very close and you can hear the breath or a lip smack and things. And then you really have that contrast of, of from the intimacy and the audience leaning in to the grand scale of uh, the, some of the, the bigger sequences and the times where we did get to really kind of move the sound around the room. There's so much to unpack in what you're talking about. But one of the things I, I noticed when I saw the film again is just you know, I think that the aspect ratio and and Emerald, the way you the way you use close-ups in the film, it puts so much pressure on poor Nina Rice. Mike, the dialogue is so crystal clear and hyper articulate in the film, and it's just it was such a pleasure to listen to. So it's it's kind of rare sometimes that we have both the director and the production sound mixer on our podcast. So so this is this is your opportunity to sing the praises of of Nina Rice, who I think must have done just a fantastic job. Uh, with the production sound mixing on the on the show. Well, Nina, indeed, always wanting to sing the praise of both Nina Hartstein and Rice. Um, but n- yes, no, Nina Rice, look, her job was made impossible every day with the fact that we were shooting on location in a huge, creaky house, um, you know, uh, in like incredible like detailed close-up um and you know and when it comes to those kinds of performances that are very intense and close obviously the adr is incredible in this movie too but you're kind of wanting to when when you're the you're so close to the lips that you can see taste buds you you really do want to be using that sound on the day and nina you know often nina would come come to me at the end and say oh god i'm not sure i'm a bit worried about you know this car scene and you know that we won't be able to hear we won't be able to hear things and then we would get you know, we'd get into the studio and it was just perfect and we could use everything. And it's important because, you know, a lot of the actors, particularly Barry, really work in the moment. They need to be in the moment. They want to be in the moment. And of course he can do ADR, but he prefers to, you know, do it, do it on the day. So it's it's really, really important that you have somebody as talented as, as Nina and obviously Liam, her boom operator too, and then the whole team who yeah, who can like capture it really properly on the day. It made all of our lives much, much easier. I'm a little surprised. I, it wouldn't have surprised me if you had said there's no ADR in the film. So uh, kudos uh, to Nita for uh, the production capture, but also, you know, to, uh, to uh, uh, Jasper, uh, to, to Adam, sorry, for the, for the dialogue mixing. That must have been uh, quite a challenge to match that up. Yeah, I mean, in places, but I mean, it wasn't just me. You know, the recordings were excellent. They were done at uh, Gold. Who was it recorded at, Nina? Mike Tirani at Goldcrest. Yeah, right. So the recordings were were really nicely matched in, and then Nina, you know, was really really finessed the the edit of these things before it even got to me. So yeah, I had to kind of match the space and whatnot. But the performances were the performances were seamless. The performance, you know, they just it just worked, and that's ninety nine percent of the battle, really, isn't it, with ADR? So yeah, it was there was a bit to do, but. 
it, it went in. I was, I was happy with it. But I've got to sing the praises also of Nina Rice here because the recordings were excellent. And obviously, you know, you've got some scenes of our beautiful actors without their shirts on, you know, so she also has to get quite creative capturing their performances with mics that they couldn't wear personally. That's right. We planted so many, like, um, uh, personals, but around the set, hidden like a boom mic in within the grass and stuff like that. Um, you know, um, hat off to my. <laughs> I hadn't thought about you. You had that sequence where they were all naked in the grass. So yeah, of course you had to you had to hide mic from them. Long weaving grass on top of mics, really dress them in. And then, um, and you buried one in the ground, I think, or you hid it in some mud. We've buried it in the ground. Packet. Let me guess. Let me let me guess which sequence you're talking about for that uh, buried buried in the mud microphone moment. But it made it possible for that scene to work because actually the sense of it being subterranean, that it was literally subterranean, the sound actually makes that scene, which is very visceral and visually shocking it, it it kind of it makes it bearable that it's not in kind of awful sort of metallic perfect clarity the sound it was really it's one of those things that was obviously a necessity during the day but actually turned out to be kind of genius psychological choice also i love that you brought that up emerald because I, I imagine with a scene like that you know for barry's performance you probably had a pretty closed set right that you 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 needed to give him plenty of kind of space to go where he needed to go to to do that scene so yeah i mean and for all like you know there are a lot of scenes in this film that required a completely closed set and again it's just everyone working together to you know be able to do their best work and um yeah, to, to, to just support each other. And, and it's, you know, the art department sometimes helping Nina and every, and everyone kind of find places or create places to hide things. And Yeah, it was one big collaborative effort, like across all departments to make it to make it work on the shooting day. Yeah. I do want to bring up uh, Anthony Willis's just amazing score uh, in the film. And, and Emerald, I'm, I'm kind of curious, you know, you, you go through a lot of tonal shifts in the film. There's the Oxford sequence, and then we get to Saltburn, and things start to become increasingly dark as we go deeper into, you know, Oliver's mental state. And I'm curious about your how you worked with, with Willis's score and also with the sound design to kind of take the audience. You, you, you walk such a tightrope, right? Because as we're learning more about Oliver it becomes increasingly dark, but you, I think you use sound design and the score really effectively to kind of lead the audience into that. Can you talk about that? Thank you. Yeah. Well, again, as always, it's just a kind of total group effort. I think part of the job of a director is to sort of make it, make all of us like we're all kind of hopefully like without wanting to sound too like cheesy kind of singing from the same hymn sheet that we all are looking at the same blueprint and we understand if it is a tightrope where the, you know, where, how to balance it, all of us together. And Anthony, um, I worked with on Prophecy on Women too, and we worked together very closely um, uh, because I think for precisely that reason, so much of the score and the sound design, all of it is, it's so, it's the backbone of the film and it's such an important emotional steer and a kind of, you know, it's also just as useful to, in diverting attention from things or giving people kind of 
you know, miss misdirections and all that kind of stuff. And so with Anthony, it, it started, uh, the movie always started in the, in the script and then on the day with, well, with, with a scene that we can all probably talk about because it's really difficult to shoot and then and then do in the mix and everything. The opening shot of the movie that isn't the flashback, which is just a long shot of Oliver walking through Oxford's Radcliffe camera. It was a huge, um, huge kind of quad um, with 250 extras, but it was it was always set to handle Zadok the priest, which is coronation theme. And, you know, this is a movie about kind of rebirth and coronation and all of that sort of stuff and who, 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 what makes a king, I guess. So with Anthony, the, the first discussion was, can, is there something we can do with Zadok? Is there a kind of refrain? Is there, a, is there something that means that we start and we end really with Zadok? And so he's, I think what he's so brilliant at, what he did with Promising a Woman and why I love him so much is I like an old, I like a theme. I like a, in many ways, quite an old fashioned thing, which is a theme. And, and the great thing about a theme is it's consistent and it can be completely different. So in this film, we have the same theme, whether it's kind of electro over the suckling pig scene, which is really grimy electro, or, you know, the most like over the top romantic sweeping kind of orchestra over the sort of, um, you know, the stone throwing at Oxford, which is kind of the most romantic, kind of traditionally romantic scene. So that's kind of what, that's where a theme can really help with that consistency and with playing with tone. And then, but then of course, it's also then with everyone else, where do we enhance it? Where do we strip it back? How do we, you know, how do we then utilize it kind of to make sure it sort of helps rather than becoming like overbearing, which I think these guys can talk to better than me. Nina and, and Elon, I'm curious for you to jump in and talk about, you know, did you have access to the score while you were working on sound design or, you know, were you, how did you how did you integrate that into what you were doing tonally? We definitely had a good idea of where the school was going and you would be playing stuff to us as well as, as you know, as the school was evolving with Anthony. And I think we were always very aware of of making sure that, and we always do on, on everything we work on, we always want to make sure that the whole soundtrack is cohesive and that the sound design and the score are complementing each other along with the, the dialogue as well and, and just making sure that they are, they're always bringing you, doing what they need to do for you. So whether they're, whether we lean into the sound design or lean into the score and, I mean, you guys, you mixers can probably talk about, we, we did a lot of work in the mix to make sure that you were actually feeling the sound, feeling the score and feeling the sound design in the room. But as a viewer, you're actually almost getting a physical reaction to it um, rather than it's just just there and matches the pictures. We wanted the kind of the, the sound to reach out. Yeah, I totally agree. I think there's a few scenes in the film where we kind of lead into it with score and we'll attempt to blend in some sound design and just let those two elements in one particular occasion we let those two things clash and we let them make the feeling the scene feel really uncomfortable um it's the happy birthday scene in question and um yeah we kind of worked in these these more dissonant tones to really make that scene just as uncomfortable as it is for oliver and uh, yeah there were lots of lots of moments where we'd allow those two things to interplay. Jasper, you're talking about the sequence where they sing happy birthday to him with the cake and, and the score is going. And then, 
And then, you know, Adam, you punch through that really devastating, so devastating piece of dialogue when somebody says, I would say, I, I, I don't remember his name because it all just drops out when they get to the, to his, it's a, it's a horrifying moment. Terrible. Yeah. And I think, I think the score leading up and sort of running through that, it makes that even, even more powerful. There's like this, there's like this beat, that whole sequence has this like beat running through it and it just doesn't stop. And it's really, it's yeah. The sound design, the sound design is, kind of subtle until we get down to the maze isn't it is that that's that's fair to say i think um but the you know the music is doing the heavy lifting and then as jasper just said we do introduce some elements to make it to make it more uncomfortable but um yeah i mean just ignoring all the sound it's just such an awkward moment <laughs> it's brilliant but again that's something that's so exciting when you're all working together because i think that that really all came together in the mix that the birthday because that sequence, there's a kind of, you know, there's a party which is just becoming moment by moment more excruciating, more intense, more out of control. And I think on the happy birthday, because it has this moment of like awful silence was always a bit problematic because it kind of, you did, you wanted it to feel like an extension of the horror, like a, like the next step of the horror rather than a kind of lull. And I think we were all working together very specifically to try and make it all feel like thumbscrews turning. And it was just everyone on the day, I think, like we all just sort of said, okay, well, if, you know, if Jasper kind of intensifies the, the, the kind of sound underneath that kind of throb, and then if we're, you know, if Adam's kind of just making sure that the, the, the quality of the silence, the nature of the petering out of the people singing happy birthday, the moment they realise they don't know his name, you know, and then Anthony kind of, you know, us sort of saying, I think actually we need... We need a we need that score kind of throbbing underneath everything else, and and you know it's just so wonderful when often until you're all there in the room together, it's really difficult to know you know you know something's not working, but you need all of you together to kind of fix it, and that was such a, that was it made such a huge difference to the film and the sequence. I want to follow up on something that you just brought up, Emerald, and I, I'll say that on our podcast we have a we have a pretty large audience of young filmmakers, film students, people who are just starting, kind of exploring making films. And so, when I I always like when I have a director on to get them to talk about how they actually communicate with their sound team and with their and with their composer, because the 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 both the sound design and the score in this film have such a strong point of view. And I'm kind of curious, Emerald, like what's your conversation as you engage these artists about where you need them to go? You know, obviously it's a, you know, it's a, it's an iterative process. So they don't nail it on the first try. And how do you kind of, what's, what's that conversation, that back and forth, how do you get them kind of guide them through this process. And obviously these are things that are very difficult to talk about in words, right? I think so. I mean, it's sort of a difficult one that because I sort of think I'm probably not the best person to describe my (laughs) style of directing when what I don't want to do is be like, well, of course, I'm just naturally a genius and how I communicate is perfect. I think it's actually weirdly without putting anyone on the spot, it's probably better to ask these guys. Honestly, they'd be more useful, I think, certainly for me, but for other directors to know how they like to be communicated with and, and what is what is effective and what isn't. I mean, certainly certainly for me, a huge part of it is right at the beginning is talking to people, meeting them, you know, having a just having much more like philosophical without being too kind of grandiose conversations. 
seeing their previous work, all of that sort of thing, and then and then it's um, and then it's just communicating, the, yeah, the feeling of the film. You know, I think with Nina Rice, we talked a lot about, um, and also going back to the party scene and getting that energy flowing, like from your amazing playlist from that era and playing that back on set that day to get, you know, to lift that energy of a going into a week of night shoots and keep the cast going, keep the crew going, and then fading it out just before action. So then the, we were able to get the performances clean, the dialogue clean from the artists. It was great. Just, it was amazing. That's the thing, I think with sounds, it all just, you know, it starts from that early process and, and actually working with, you know, Emerald, I know you don't want to blow your own trumpet, but I will blow it here because actually it is, um, you know, working with you on this has felt as collaborative as a journey with sound as I have ever had. And I think that whole, the discussions that we would have in the early days, going through the film, spotting the film, make, taking notes, speaking uh, regularly and talking about the score and making sure that we were all, all kind of, like you say, singing from the same hymn sheet, but also the whole the whole sort of conceptually and as you say recording it getting everyone on set with the correct energy the right energy for the scenes it's all with sound in mind and you don't you don't always work on a film that actually has has how it's going to sound in the forefront of the process so early on and it does feel like definitely on this one you know sound was an integral part of it and it actually it was it was a delight for us to come in and work with something that was so um so conscious of the sound and so thoughtful of the sound and edited with sound in mind and shot with sound in mind and actually to be able to um, bring then our part to it in post-production, it, it felt it felt like a great journey. Even the original Avid track that we received, we looked at it and, and we um, we thought that, you know, it, it's brilliant. The, even the use of pop music and, you know, just to tell you about the era, the time, you know, you have the the Cheeky Girls <laughs> Christmas song, you know, uh, it's it's a, such a brilliant choice of music and we had temp score early on and um, the the rhythms of how things were cut, the picture was cut. Um, we knew we had something great and our spotting, uh, our first spotting session was hilarious. <laughs> we, <laughs> If you read our notes, <laughs> you you know um, we were all we were giggling throughout and you know laughing out loud. Um, it was brilliant, and we knew we had something amazing just from the start. Yeah, I must say I was uh, I was warned about the uh, foley coming in before I mixed the tracks. <laughs> and uh, yeah, fair enough, fair enough. It was a fair warning. <laughs> but um, just to just to comment on Emerald uh, Emerald's directing style, I think. Uh, one of the phrases she would often use is uh, it's a delicate balance and whether it was one of the more uh, explicit scenes or you know one of these intense party scenes um, you know it was always a, a delicate balance to get things right and uh, a lot of experimentation in the mix and I think hats off to everybody for uh, not being afraid of that experimentation during the mix. Yeah I thought that too is we, 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 we did experiment a lot in this mix and Emerald was really attentive to the mix. You know, sometimes people have, and you know, it's partly a scheduling thing, but Emerald was there at the crack of door. And every time we started, Emerald was there with us the whole, you know, didn't leave till if we were going till midnight, she was, she stayed around and, and, and it meant we could continuously offer her 
solutions to different things. You know, she's quite, uh, you know, she's got a good vocabulary and can explain things in a, in a way that, that makes sense to us. And then we can kind of go off, you know, audition stuff and, and she can then say, oh, I like that. I didn't like this. You know, we just keep evolving it. And because she was so attentive to the sound, it allowed us to try things so many different ways, more so than we would on, you know, on a lot of pictures. But that's also what's so wonderful about working with so many like ridiculously talented people as well is that actually the job, the kind of hope is that you're all comfortable enough. Like every, every step of the like filmmaking process for me, even like in a way, you know, shout out to Victoria Boydell and Rob and Rihanna, her amazing team too, because they are brilliant um, their end. And so they were getting these guys some really fantastic a really fantastic blueprint but but it's also like partly it's that for it to be exciting and vital you need to be experimenting up to the end you need to be pushing pushing and it is a delicate balance because this is a very gothic movie in lots of ways it's very stylized but it needs to also be you know too much and it just becomes kind of overwhelming and so but but so the 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 thing of working with lots of people who are really brilliant is what you want to do is just give everyone the space actually to try lots of different things because sometimes you just don't know the perfect thing until you hear it or see it and it's the same in every you know for us you know with Nina Rice on set you know it was a similar thing always as well as it was just like giving people the opportunity to come with you know to 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 push things a bit further and push them until they were much too far and then to pull them back it's that's always how you make stuff that is on the edge of something interesting you know you have to fall off to know where you can come back and that's that's why it's such a fun exciting process and it kind of has to be right until the last second it's not that me and like Nina don't like listen to it and we're like ah you know because you know there's and I'm the same always you always you could tinker with things forever but it's um no it's but it's still thrilling it was thrilling that even on the last day you find something that's like really special and just really changes something fundamentally that's that's what's making films are so brilliant. I appreciate you saying this and you've been very generous with your time. Uh, there's so much to talk about in this film, but I want to, I want to wrap up with just a lightning round right quick. Uh, sometimes we like to ask everyone for what's your favorite sound moment in the film, something that when you're watching the film and it comes up, it just kind of makes you giggle with delight. Uh, you know, that just, that just uh, fills you with some joy as you listen uh, to the track on the film. Uh, Jasper, I'm going to pick on you. Do you want to you want to start? Ah, without spoilers, it's kind of tricky. But um, yeah, at a very pivotal moment, uh, Anthony's score is just incredible. My hairs stand up on my arms every time I hear it. Um, we've played over that scene hundreds, if not thousands of times. And every time it happens, uh, yeah, hairs up on the arms. It's yeah, harrowing, uh, but beautiful as well. Yeah. So that's it for me. I don't really think I can <laughs> reveal any more. But uh... fantastic, Adam. How about you? Bath plug. <laughs> <laughs> now I have a question about that. And Nina Rice was that production, or is that was that an ADR moment, or how? What that 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 was such a particular slurp, I would say. But but we did um, put down a, <laughs> a few um, uh, lapel mic right next to him on the bath, <laughs> um, just out of shot. So, um, yeah, we did. I think it's all production. It is production. It can't not be because it's so specific. You can't recreate that thing. But at the same time, I think, but also these guys did amazing work with the 
with the water and the drain and the like gurgling, you know, the, the stuff that, you know, we couldn't obviously do on the day because we couldn't have kind of plumbing interrupting Nina's work. But, but you know, that all, you know, then again, when it's really exciting, then the bath becomes kind of alive, then that's kind of breathing too. Like it's just, it's always, it's never just one thing. It's everyone together always. All right, let's continue our lightning round. We have to wrap up. Nina Rice, how about you? What's your favorite sound moment? My favorite sound moment would have to be when um, Richard E. Grant's character in one of the scenes goes from a whisper to a shout. And it's just like, boom! And you're like so scared <laughs> in that moment. But it was just capturing that amazing performance. And like, you know, you're, you almost jump out of your seat when you, when you hear that piece of dialogue. Such a great performance. Elon, how about you? The grave moment. <laughs> <laughs> for spoilers, we can't for spoilers, but everyone will know. That's all you need to say, the grave moment. Uh, there, is, there is a moment that never stops making me laugh, and it's when Professor Ware responds to something in a scene, and every single time he makes a particular vocalization, I'm just in pieces. So it's going for a joyful, there's so many moments, but going for a joyful moment, that is one. Emerald, bring us home. Oh God, I actually think it's when Michael Gavey um, is eating a crunchy like a, like a beef burger. <laughs> just the sound of a crunchy, which for American or non-British viewers is a sort of um, lovely 7-Eleven style chocolate bar with a very specific crunch. You know, he eats it in such a peculiar way, but it, but the sound of it really draws attention to the peculiarity in it. And I, I just love it every time. That's brilliant. Thank you guys so much for talking to us about Saltburn. It's an extraordinary film, quite an accomplishment, and just a fantastic track. It's been a pleasure talking with you all today. Bye. Thank Thanks you so much. Thank Many thanks to Emerald, Jasper, Adam, Alam, and both Nina Hartstone and Nina Rice for joining us on the podcast today. Saltburn is playing now in select theaters and Dolby Atmos. We'll have a link to tickets, as always, in the show notes. And if you'd like even more conversations with artists and filmmakers about how they use technology to tell their stories, please be sure you are subscribed to us, the Dolby Institute podcast. You can find links to our show on all the major podcasting platforms, including the video version on YouTube, in our show notes. Or you can simply search for Dolby wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're curious to know more about the Dolby Institute, head on over to dolbyinstitute.com. There you will find information about all of our programs. You can access the entire library of episodes of this podcast, and you can sign up for our mailing list. Until next time, thanks again for joining us. This is the Dolby Institute podcast. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry with additional editing by Matt Nixon. Thanks for joining us.